Hello, I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and we welcome you to this edition of The Daily Journal podcast. We will be talking about international arbitration, which has become one of the most important current issues in California law and law practice. If you would like CLE credit for listening to this hour, it is very easy to get through The Daily Journal. Just go to the website, dailyjournal.com or dailyjournal.com slash podcast. Both of those are outside the Daily Journal paywall. You don't have to be a subscriber to the Daily Journal to do the, to do this. Go to those websites. You will see a link to an MCLE test for this podcast and for others as well. And if you fill it out electronically and send it in, you may be able to obtain the one-hour credit for listening to this podcast. Our guest today is one of the most distinguished practitioners in California, uh, Daniel Kolke a longtime partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. He left private practice for several years for very important government work. He was legal affairs secretary among many notable positions, legal affairs secretary to Governor Wilson, and he served for several years as a justice on the Third District Court of Appeal in Sacramento. We are talking about international arbitration with him today, not just for that general background, but because he also was the principal drafter of the California International Arbitration and Conciliation Act and a principal person involved in drafting new legislation with the latest significant amendment to that act. So we're delighted to have him with us to talk about international arbitration. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Howard. Thanks. Tell us, let's start with the importance, especially today, the importance and difference of international arbitration in in the economy and in law practice. So international arbitration is quite different from domestic arbitration. One thing, uh, the obligation to arbitrate pursuant to an arbitration agreement and the right to enforce an arbitral award is subject to uh, several international conventions. And just as importantly, uh, unlike domestic arbitration, uh, a international arbitration is often cited uh, at a venue uh, where neither of the parties uh, have offices or locations and is done as a matter of neutrality. But the uh, real advantages of international arbitration with respect to international commerce is that uh, it avoids the risk of one party being subject to the other party's courts. It's a way of having a neutral, agreed-upon venue uh, to adjudicate the dispute between the parties. And uh, just as important as that is the fact that uh, if one has a domestic judgment, it can often be difficult to enforce that judgment overseas. Uh, For the most part, one has to rely on the laws of the jurisdiction in which you're enforcing the judgment. But international arbitration is subject to uh, two conventions, but the most significant one is the New York Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. And that convention provides that any award that's issued in a jurisdiction that's a signatory to the New York Convention uh, can be enforced in another jurisdiction that's a signatory. And virtually all the major commercial jurisdictions are signatories to the New York Convention. So it is easier to enforce your arbitral award internationally through an arbitration than it would be through a judgment. 
This is such an important point that I'm, I'm really going to pause on it because it's so critical, especially to those who haven't done international arbitration in the past. If you're a California lawyer and you sue a foreign corporation, for example, in California, and you get a judgment against that, that corporation, state or federal court, you can't take that judgment, except under the most extraordinary circumstances, to another country, to the home country, for example, of the foreign corporation to enforce it. But if you get and if I have this correct, if you get an international arbitration award, an international arbitration that meets the requirements of the New York Convention, which are perfectly straightforward, then you can take that arbitration award to any country which also has signed the New York Convention, I believe there are over 150, and directly enforce that arbitration award in that country, including the home country of the foreign corporation you've sued. Is that a fair statement of the importance yeah. of that? That's right. That's right. I mean, that is what makes international arbitration uh, advantageous over regular litigation, because it's not enough to uh, prevail in the case. You've got to obviously enforce your resulting decision. And, you know, frankly, are some other uh, real benefits of international arbitration. Uh, One, of course, is alluded to, which is uh, you have the right to select the jurisdiction for your dispute resolution which means that you can assure yourself a more neutral site for the adjudication, but it also allows you to select your adjudicators for your dispute or determine uh, what the expertise must be of the adjudicators. For instance, if it's a construction dispute, an international construction dispute, uh, you can require that the arbitrators have experience in uh, construction law. Uh, You also can provide the governing law and you have a, a better chance of having that governing law respected uh, with an international arbitration. And then, of course, for many parties, it's uh, important that they maintain the confidentiality of their dispute resolution proceedings. And that, again, uh, can be done through an international arbitration, but cannot be done, obviously, uh, in a uh, U.S. court. So uh, for all those reasons, for international commerce, International arbitration is really a uh, preferred means of fairly resolving a dispute. And this is not, and because of that, those advantages, this is not a minor part of practice. I mean, this is in jurisdictions that have attracted international arbitration. I mean, The Economist had a story a couple of years ago on the economics of international arbitration in terms of its effect on the legal profession and and communities. And in the year that it was published, uh, sometime in the last three years, in that year, The Economist magazine estimated that the revenue to the city of New York, not just for lawyers' fees and associated matters and everything that it brings uh, to travel industry, was about $2 billion for the year because of the attractiveness of international arbitration. So this is not simply as, in terms of why we're talking about it, and not just for the technical side of it, but for those who have not done it, this is an enormously important area of law economically for clients and for lawyers. And Howard, I think that uh, your point there highlights uh, the purpose of this podcast, which is for uh, decades, uh, there's been a desire by California lawyers to try and bring California up uh, the standards of being a respected and uh, uh, appreciated jurisdiction for international arbitrations. But uh, at the moment, uh, New York is way ahead of California 
and indeed with respect to some major arbitral institutions, which we'll get into, uh, Florida has more uh, than California. Well, and uh, let's talk about how we got here and why we are not why we are not further. Uh, first of all, I'd be interested in how did you get involved in international arbitration? Uh, what, how did that happen that you became involved in this in terms of your background? So it really stems from the fact that uh, I always loved and had a deep interest in foreign policy. And after I uh, went to law school and determined that I preferred litigation over transactional work to specialize in, I started to look and determine, you know, how could I join my interest in foreign policy with a litigation practice, which was pretty difficult because the most purposes, uh, a litigator has got to be qualified in the jurisdiction that he or she uh, has received uh, their license. So at the time, international arbitration was one way of my interest in international relations with uh, my uh, interest in being a litigator. So I started out uh, when I actually started with Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher as uh, an associate and would look for any opportunity to handle international arbitration uh, and was willing to, frankly, just get lunch for the, uh, the partners if I could in some way uh, be involved in international arbitration. So the first one I got involved in was a, a matter that involved uh, an arms dealer and an Iranian princess. Uh, but interestingly enough, it was governed by Missouri law uh, because one of the parties was headquartered in Missouri and had managed to uh, require that Missouri law be the governing law on the dispute. So my first involvement with an international arbitration was researching the parole evidence rule under Missouri law, which was going to have a dispositive effect uh, on the outcome. I'd like to hear more about that. I just want to make a comment, Dan, for, for any, any of the young lawyers listening or people at law firms uh, searching and looking to be distinctive and develop something, no matter what firm you're in, I mean, here was Dan as a young lawyer at Gibson Dunn, who was interested in international work, pressed it, made the firm aware of it, looked out for opportunities, and essentially became a key player in developing this area of law. So for all of the young and not-so-young lawyers listening to this podcast, there are ways within an institution, if you've got a special interest, this is a great story of law practice. If you're interested in something, even if the firm is not then involved in it, push it, seek to develop it, reach out, and you may find yourself, as Dan has, as a major leader in a new field, not only for the your firm, but for the practice of law. I just thought it was so interesting that you were able to do that as a young associate, Dan. Well, thank you. In, in fact, uh, the other thing I did is I started attending as many international arbitration conferences as I could to learn as much as I could, and soon finagled my way uh, onto speaking on some panels. And, of course, it's with uh, you know that recognition by your peers that you've got some expertise in it that you end up also getting referrals. And now so, it, that was, then it led to... Uh, I mean, you then became, there was no, when you started this, uh, you know, the international arbitration in California was chaotic in its law and how it applied, and you became a principal drafter of what is now the California International Arbitration and Conciliation Act. How, how did that come, come about? So uh, in Los Angeles, a group of uh, international arbitration lawyers decided to put together a uh, 
a center for international arbitration. Uh, don't know if I can remember the exact name, but it was something like the Los Angeles Center for International Commercial Arbitration. And as part of that effort, uh, a couple of us thought it would be useful in terms of making California a more recognized jurisdiction for international arbitration to enact a version of the UNCTRAL model law on international arbitration, UNCTRAL being the UN Commission on International Trade Law, and uh, UNCTRAL had a model international arbitration act uh, that could be adopted by various jurisdictions. So we decided as a group that maybe we should try and get the UNCTRAL model law enacted in California. Ultimately, I and another lawyer, Al Gobert, practicing in Los Angeles, uh, decided to actually draft our version of the UNCTRAL model law, basically taking the model law and making modifications to make it more applicable to California. So we, the two of us largely put this together. We got some comments from other members of our small group, uh, and someone had a connection with the state legislature and got an author. Uh, and before we knew it, uh, there were some committee hearings. Al Gobert and I both appeared at the committee hearings, and uh, we got the law unanimously passed out of the committees and unanimously, as, as far as I recall, uh, passed out of the legislature. And the governor at the time, Governor Duke Majin, uh, signed uh, California's uh, version of the UNCTRAL model law. So the benefit of the enactment of a version of the UNCTRAL model law is that it had internationally accepted procedures uh, for international arbitral practitioners, and it was a familiar standard, such that the hope was that with a set of internationally accepted standards for international arbitration, uh, which was familiar to the international arbitration bar, uh, California would become a more hospitable environment for attorneys to uh, select as a venue for their international arbitrations. And I must just add a kind of amusing story about the enactment of this law. Uh, about a year after the law was enacted, uh, I had the pleasure of introducing Governor Duke Majin at an event. And I noted that uh, of, of all of his accomplishments, the one that uh, really springs to mind as one of his most important was his signing of the California International uh, Commercial International Arbitration and Conciliation Act. And Duke Majin turned to me and he said, well, Dan, you know, I must admit, I don't even remember signing that act. <laughs> he remembered then. <laughs> okay. That's wonderful. The act, we should mention that the act formally enacted, but it's now, will you do ever do a search on it? It's in the Code of Civil Procedure. It's in Code of Civil Procedure sections 1297.11 to 1297.432. 1297.11 .1 to 1297.432 is the complete text of, of that act, which has been and still is the existing California law on international arbitration. So you got this enacted, and what then followed after, after it was enacted? Well, after it was enacted, Al Gobert and I wrote uh, an article for the California lawyer to introduce the act. Uh, but I've got to say that while the 
was modeled on the Unser Trail model law. Uh, most uh, practitioners who handled international arbitration in California, I don't believe, uh, were aware of the act. Uh, and notwithstanding some efforts by our L.A. group to advertise it, uh, it just didn't have the uh, effect that we hoped it would. But then um, we'll talk more about what qualifies something as an international arbitration and uh, different providers and, and technical. But then something very significant, even while in the doldrums, something significant happened in the Supreme Court in, in a case that really worked to inhibit the growth of international arbitration in California, uh, the Bierbrauer case in 1998. Tell us what happened there, because that worked really as a barrier to the growth of international arbitration for many years. Well, that's right. So uh, virtually 10 years from when the California version of the Unstrail Model Law was enacted, uh, the California Supreme Court, as you mentioned in this case, called the Bierbrauer Montalbano, Condon, and Frank versus Superior Court uh, came out. And it was a case where a New York law firm had uh, engaged in the practice of law in California by performing legal services for a California corporation uh, regarding a dispute subject to arbitration in California. And frankly, I believe that uh, most out-of-state attorneys assume that if they were handling an arbitration in California, uh, that would not be considered the unauthorized practice of law. Uh, but uh, based on a plain language reading of the relevant statute, uh, <clears throat> one could argue that uh, practicing law in California with respect to a California corporation uh, governed by a dispute that's governed by California law and arbitration in California uh, could be the practice of law in California. The Supreme Court held that the practice of law in California included representation of parties in arbitrations in California. And so the result, of course, was that the New York law firm's fees for services in California uh, could be denied. The legislature moved quickly in response to that decision and enacted uh, Code of Civil Procedure Section 1282.4, which provided that an out-of-state attorney could represent a client in a California arbitration, provided that they associated with a licensed California attorney as an attorney of record in the case, filed a certificate with some fundamental information about the uh, attorney, uh, which would be served on the arbitrator, the state bar, and the parties to the arbitration, and then that out-of-state attorney would obtain approval from the arbitrator or the arbitral forum to appear. And if you did all three things, the out-of-state attorney could appear in a California arbitration. But one problem with the quick response by the California legislature was that, one, uh, the law did not address the right of foreign attorneys to represent their clients in arbitrations. And uh, secondly, uh, the statute did not address the right of even out-of-state attorneys to represent their clients in an international arbitration in California. And that was because the new statute, 1282.4 of the Code of Civil Procedure, 
simply did not apply to the International Arbitration Act that Al Gobert and I had drafted 10 years earlier, because that act had been very clear that there were certain portions of California's domestic arbitration procedure that would not apply in an international arbitration. And one of them was California's very specific section on motions to compel arbitration, uh, of which uh, the legislature positioned uh, this particular new statute within the three chapters that we had excluded to make clear that our international arbitration statute was not a parochial statute. It was based on the accepted international standards for arbitration. And so we excluded any specific California-centric arbitration provisions instead of the uh, uh, UNCITRAIL model law provisions. So the legislature apparently did not check as to the reach of its statute or existing law that superseded its uh, positioning of its new statute in this in these chapters that were excluded from the International Arbitration Act. There's no way, there's no way to overemphasize the negative impact that this set of episodes, the Bierbrauer case, followed by what was essentially the inadequate or insufficient legislative response, the impact that had on keeping arbitration outside, international arbitrations, outside of California. I know there are many stories you can tell, but I was at international conferences where when this subject came up, the lawyers from other jurisdictions said, you know, if you go to California, if you're a French lawyer or a British lawyer and you appear in international arbitration, you can go to jail. And they said, look, it's the unlawful practice of law. And there's a statute that says the unlawful practice of law can be deemed to be a, a misdemeanor. And of course, it was it was in, not, not very sensible, but it was really used as a way for other jurisdictions to prevent California from growing as a center of international arbitration, despite California's deep connections internationally and with the Pacific Rim. Is that, is that the same experience that you had, Dan, in terms of its impact? Oh, that's right. I mean, it provided also just a convenient excuse for a foreign attorney to not agree to cite their arbitration in California and to try and cite the arbitration in a jurisdiction that might be uh, uh, more preferable to that foreign lawyer than California. So it, it absolutely had an impact. And as I say, the bottom line of Bierbrauer and the legislative effort to fix the Bierbrauer problem was that it's excluded both out-of-state and foreign attorneys from representing their clients in a international commercial arbitration in California. And there's been, we, been recent activity in the last couple of years that you've played such a prominent role in uh, to correct that problem, both with the state Supreme Court uh, and with the legislature, because this became understood to be a major problem. The California legislature got involved uh, in 2014 uh, in, in making clear how important that it was. And so quite properly, this, the state Supreme Court uh, got involved uh, and appointed a committee uh, to suggest different rules that would permit uh, both out-of-state and foreign lawyers to appear 
in California international arbitration in the interest not just of the California legal profession, but of the California economy. And it demonstrates the respect with which Dan has held that he was appointed chair of that committee, uh, which ultimately led to legislation. But Dan, can you take us through that process? Tell us about the committee and what the final result was. Yeah, let me actually back up a bit. The international arbitral community recognized the impact that Bierbrauer was having on the prospects of California growing in international arbitration practice and uh, venue. So a small group of international arbitration lawyers, uh, including uh, you, Howard, uh, tried to remedy the problem by proposing some legislation. And as I recall, uh, there was some legislation uh, that was introduced around 2014, uh, but that effort got stymied on two grounds. One is, as I recall, the uh, a staff member of the Assembly Judiciary Committee was insisting that there be a fee paid by foreign attorneys if they wanted to appear in a California international arbitration, which we knew would uh, be problematic and, and still leave California uh, considered an unfriendly site for international arbitration. And uh, the Judicial Council had not been brought into it. And of course, the Supreme Court is ultimately in charge of uh, attorney discipline in California. And thus, uh, the the bill just went nowhere, ultimately. So in late 2016, I was at a reception at which the Chief Justice uh, was speaking, and I approached her and raised the problem of this prescription against foreign and out-of-state attorneys representing their clients in international commercial arbitrations in California. Uh, and she suggested that I send a letter to the court to that effect, which I did. And uh, ultimately, uh, as I understand it, the court as a group uh, agreed that uh, the court ought to uh, investigate the issue. And uh, in February of 2017, so really just within two months of my letter, uh, the Chief Justice announced the formation of the Supreme Court International Commercial Arbitration Working Group and named me as chair. Uh, and uh, Howard, as you noted, it was to address whether foreign and out-of-state attorneys should be authorized to represent their clients in international commercial arbitrations held in California. And we were charged with studying California law, California regulations, other states' laws, and uh, non-U.S. jurisdictions' laws governing uh, the right of attorneys to represent their clients in international commercial arbitration. Uh, and we were told, uh, by the way, that uh, the court was anxious to have our study completed and submitted to the court. So really in record time, I mean, the uh, appointment took place uh, on February 10, 2017, and by uh, April, two months later, we had a full report that went through what various jurisdictions were doing, the issues and, uh, and problems that the current law was causing uh, California in terms of it being selected as a venue for international arbitration. We ultimately came up with three options for the court with our preferred 
recommendation being uh, one based on the American Bar Association's recommendation for a model rule of temporary practice by foreign lawyers, which essentially was a recommendation as to how foreign lawyers could fly in and fly out of a jurisdiction uh, in the U.S. to represent their client uh, in a uh, international uh, arbitration. Uh, we then took that recommendation and uh, modified it a bit to work best for California. But for the most part, we relied on the ABA model rule there, the recommendation, again, for the same reason that we had relied on the UNCITRAL model law when enacting the uh, California International Arbitration Act, which is that we wanted a, uh, a law that had some recognized uh, and accepted uh, support. And we thought using an ABA recommendation would provide the uh, imprimatur of a recognized, respected body uh, as to how to best do this. And the net effect uh, and then, of this, the net effect of this uh, was that you made a recommendation. Uh, the Supreme Court approved the recommendation. Uh, that recommendation then went to the state legislature and was ultimately passed uh, as Senate Bill 766 and signed by Governor Brown. And what does that now provide so that uh, foreign and state, uh, state lawyers can appear and help us with the growth of international arbitration in California? So what it does, uh, largely following the uh, ABA recommendation, is it allows an attorney admitted to practice in any U.S. state or the District of Columbia or a member of any recognized legal profession in a foreign jurisdiction to represent uh, their clients in an international commercial arbitration in California if one of any of the following uh, grounds applies. Uh, one, they can do it if their services are undertaken in association with an attorney to practice law in California. That's an obvious one. But two, they don't need to associate with an attorney admitted to practice in California uh, as long as the services that they're going to render arise out of or are reasonably related to that attorney's practice in their jurisdiction where they're admitted, which means if uh, it's an antitrust matter and the attorney has an antitrust practice in their foreign jurisdiction, they can uh, handle the international arbitration in California. The third alternative ground is uh, if that foreign attorney is performing these services for a client who has an office or resides in that attorney's jurisdiction uh, where the attorney is admitted. And by the way, if the attorney is admitted in several jurisdictions, as long as one of the jurisdictions is one in which the client has an office or resides, the attorney can represent uh, that client in California. Alternatively, there's a fourth ground. Uh, if the services arise out of or reasonably relate to a matter that has a substantial connection to the attorney's jurisdiction, uh, that, too, uh, is a basis. Uh, and finally, if the uh, services uh, arise out of a dispute governed primarily by international law or the law of a foreign or out-of-state jurisdiction, meaning as long as it's governed by a law other than California law, that is a separate ground. 
to allow that attorney uh, to represent uh, his or her client in an international commercial arbitration in California. And since these grounds worked well enough for the ABA, we believed it would work well enough uh, for California. And and also, the they're very broad. I mean, it, it really means that any lawyer representing that lawyer's client in a foreign jurisdiction who has anything in California uh, can appear in the international arbitration in California. And procedurally, the lawyer doesn't have to file anything special anyplace. Isn't that correct? Doesn't have to file with the state bar, doesn't have to file pro hoc vici application. The foreign or out-of-state American lawyer can simply appear in the international arbitration in California if one of those statutory grounds, those very broad statutory grounds are met. That's right. And indeed, that was one of the things that uh, we were concerned about as a working group was we didn't want the foreign attorney to have to pay a fee or the out-of-state attorney have to pay a fee or report specifically to the state bar. I should note that, you know, in order to make this work and get the support of the California Judicial Council and the California legislature, uh, the uh, foreign or out-of-state attorney, uh, you know, is subject to the requirements of California's rules of professional conduct. Uh, but that would be understood, I believe, in, in any jurisdiction that anyone is is operating in, that they're going to have to abide by the jurisdiction's rules on professional conduct. Yeah. No, I think that's pretty pretty well understood. And we should talk about among the importance of these things, when it comes to talking with counsel, foreign counsel or out-of-state counsel, uh, if you have a client in California, a California company, and you want to cite the arbitration in California, no longer can that counsel, the French or British or, or Japanese or Chinese lawyer, say, well, I'm not going to do that because I can't come to California and appear in the arbitration. That objection is now out the window. And so in negotiating arbitration clauses in international matters, it opens up a new area of negotiation in terms of insisting that the arbitration can occur in California. Uh, and, and that really gives great advantages to California counsel and to California corporations. Is that, if we get to the point of, let's talk for a moment about how this all fits into the transactional lawyer drafting an arbitration agreement, that really changes the nature of what can be negotiated, doesn't it? That's right. I mean, then there can't be an objection to the fact that the attorney for the opposing party can't appear and litigate in the international commercial arbitration in California. And it means that the California procedural law that will apply is based on the UNSTRAL model law. So California has an internationally accepted set of procedures for the international arbitration over and above any rules that the parties may agree upon to govern their international arbitration. And, and most practitioners are going to have some set of rules uh, that will govern the international arbitration, like those of, of the ICC or JAMS or LCIA, et cetera, or the American Arbitration Association. So it really eliminates any objection to California as a venue for the arbitration uh, and then leaves the discussion to, you know, what is a convenient and neutral place 
for the arbitration to be held. And while we're talking about, I think it's convenient time, uh, before we turn to some other subjects, while we're talking about negotiating the California uh, the Arbitration Clause in International Arbitration, what other major items, because this is an area all by itself in terms of negotiating the Arbitration Clause, this is not just the standard plain vanilla arbitration language of domestic arbitrations. What other key points should California lawyers be looking out for in terms of negotiating international arbitration clauses for their clients, in addition to having the venue be in California? Right. All right. So one I've I've alluded to already, which is that you want to select a set of rules to govern the arbitration in addition to the procedures of the venue in which you're in. And there are international bodies that have rules that basically fill the gaps of procedural issues that you might not have thought about at the time you're drafting the clause. So it's always safe to have, say, the international arbitration rules of JAMS or the international arbitration rules of the ICC Chamber of Commerce or those of uh, the uh, International Center for Dispute Resolution, which is a division of the American Arbitration Association. But that will help at least safeguard that the procedures are going to be covered on things that you may not have remembered. Next, you want to identify the number of arbitrators. Uh, For an international arbitration, the norm is three arbitrators, but that can be expensive. But the benefit of the three arbitrators is it avoids a single runaway decision by a single individual, those other two arbitrators will help uh, assure that you've got a rational decision, uh, just as a three-member court of appeal uh, allows the fact that you're going to have a uh, a rational decision. Uh, And I might say that for an international arbitration, uh, to the extent a party is concerned that uh, the arbitrator might not have a cultural or legal perspective shared by that party, uh, which may be important for the resolution of the dispute, having three arbitrators allows the opportunity for at least one of the arbitrators to share the legal and cultural perspective of uh, each of the parties. And one might even provide for two party-appointed arbitrators so that each party at least has someone who is sensitive to their legal and cultural issues, uh, and then a third arbitrator that's a neutral, that's either selected by the two other arbitrators or selected by the arbitral institution. Uh, you'd want to specify, along with your rules, an arbitral institution that would uh, administer those rules. Uh, uh, you want to obviously specify the location for the arbitration, and I might add that the uh, The place of the arbitration is more than simply selecting a convenient place. The place of the arbitration uh, is going to probably affect the selection of the arbitrators, because if you have an organization administering the arbitration, uh, that organization is very likely going to look for arbitrators who are uh, residents or available in the venue cited for the arbitration. So your place of arbitration may help in terms of uh, the arbitrators that are selected. Uh, And the place of arbitration will uh, determine your procedural law. Uh, And, of course, the place of arbitration is going to be very relevant 
in terms of the enforcement of the award, because as we said at the beginning of the podcast, uh, as long as the award is issued in a jurisdiction that's a signatory to the New York Convention, that award can be enforced in any other New York Convention uh, jurisdiction. Uh, choice of law and language are important issues to you know, consider for your clause. And by the way, language, the selection of the language for the arbitration may also help affect the selection of the arbitrator. So if it's the English language, uh, you get an English speaker, which is you know, going to help if your witnesses are English speakers, because I've always found that even with translations, uh, when you have a translator translating the witness's testimony, uh, it can sometimes overlook nuances in the language. It's always more effective to have the witness speaking the same language uh, as the arbitrator. Uh, I've mentioned the choice of law. Uh, you might want to specify the currency for the award. You know, failure to specify the currency might result in uh, uh, you're taking the risk of currency fluctuations depending upon the currency in which the award uh, is ultimately rendered. You might want an attorney's fees clause. Uh, if your rules don't provide a method of selection for the arbitrators, you might want to have your own uh, method of selection. Uh, and then, of course, there's the uh, scope of the clause itself that's important. Uh, a uh, narrow clause may only provide for disputes arising out of your contract. Uh, most uh, organize, organizations that administer these arbitrations now recognize that to make sure they capture everything, they want to not only talk about disputes arising out of the contract or relating to it, but including the termination or invalidity of the contract. So one can't argue that if the claim is that the contract's invalid, uh, then it doesn't uh, necessarily arise out of the uh, contract. And some clauses suggest that you go beyond the contract for any dispute that uh, relates to the legal relationship associated with the contract, which would capture non-contract claims. So you want to give some consideration as to the scope of your clause as to what's covered by the arbitration. So that, in, in more than a nutshell, are the considerations that one ought to take into account in, in drafting that clause. And, and one other very important consideration that recently arose in a case in the Supreme Court of California uh, didn't just involve after an award was made by the arbitrators in international arbitration enforcing under the New York Convention, but issues of jurisdiction over the parties uh, to an arbitration. That is, jurisdiction for California courts, for example, to enter confirmation awards, or uh, jurisdiction really for what is proper notice involving the arbitration. It was recently decided by the Supreme Court of California just in the past couple of months, the Rockefeller Technologies case, which resolved an important uh, issue that appeared at one point to be open in this law. Can you tell us about Rockefeller Technologies? Yes, and in fact, uh, Howard, as you know, uh, I wrote uh, one of the amicus briefs uh, for that case, so I am very familiar with it. Uh, the issue there was that the parties had provided that they would give notice through a Federal Express or a similar courier with copies by email or facsimile, and further provided that uh, service of process would be effectuated uh, by those same means. 
but the Court of Appeal in that case held that those agreed means for service of process uh, did not comply with the Hague Convention on service abroad of judicial and extrajudicial documents. And therefore, uh, because the Court of Appeal said the Hague Convention is mandatory, which it is, and these provisions weren't uh, recognized in it, uh, the service of process in that case uh, was ineffective. And since both the uh, demand for arbitration was served in that manner and the petition to confirm the award in court was served in that manner, the Court of Appeal uh, found that uh, the uh, confirmation of the award uh, was not effective uh, because it was not the service process wasn't proper. And we should mention before we go on with the case how dramatic and important this was because the the notices the various notice for the arbitration was was uh, noticed in the same way. Uh, the defendant was a Chinese corporation did not show up. And so there was a default entered in the arbitration proceeding, and it is that default arbitration award that was then at issue in the confirmation. So whether this was effective service or not is a critical issue for arbitrations as well as uh, court proceedings. That's right. Uh, so the, the issue in the case did not go to whether the demand for arbitration was properly uh, served pursuant to the notice provisions of the contract, but only went to uh, whether or not uh, the uh, petition to confirm the award in a court could be served pursuant to the party's agreed method of service. And uh, fortunately, the Supreme Court ruled that the Hague Service Convention only applies when the forum state requires formal service of process abroad. And California law. Uh, allows parties to specify the manner of service uh, for a petition to confirm or vacate an award. Uh, and the California Supreme Court, I'd say in a nutshell, basically ruled that uh, an agreement by the parties as to how service the process should be effectuated uh, constituted a waiver of the Hague Service Convention. And thus, uh, the Hague Service Convention could be waived uh, as long as the forum state allowed such waivers, and California law did. So this really uh, addresses uh, any problem uh, that one might have in terms of uh, the Hague Service Convention if you're cited in California. Now, mind you, uh, while uh, there are some decisions, usually very curt decisions, by some states that also find a waiver of the Hague Service Convention. Uh, it's not settled uh, in the U.S. generally. And so if one has venue in another state, one's going to have to carefully look at that. But in the meantime, I would certainly suggest that uh, parties writing uh, arbitration clauses not only make clear you know, what the manner of service ought to be with respect to the demand for arbitration and any court proceeding to confirm or vacate the award, but should probably uh, have an express waiver of the provisions of the Hague Service Convention. So it's absolutely clear uh, that what they're doing is waiving it. Uh, I will note, Rockefeller, there was not an express waiver of the Hague Service Convention. What there was 
was an express statement saying that service of process would be through the agreed methods specified in the agreement. But that's such a critical point in terms now of drafting arbitration clauses, because uh, without an express waiver, Supreme Court of California essentially said there was a waiver by the language, but this is now one of the items, one of the clauses that ought to be part of every uh, international arbitration agreement, an international arbitration uh, clause in an agreement in California, uh, that there be language that is, it, it is an express waiver, so that that agreement clearly comes within uh, the Rockefeller Technologies case and does provide for service. As anyone who's tried to affect service under the Hague Convention knows, uh, that is a very, very important provision. And it was applied, as I understand it, even though uh, China, as well as other major countries like England and France, as a country, has said they do not permit service by anything, by, by mail or any other process. The California Supreme Court got around that by simply finding the waiver. So the Supreme Court's opinion is a very specific guideline as to what another clause that ought to be included in any international arbitration agreement and is absolutely vital uh, for those doing California international arbitration. Uh, Dan, one other subject. Is well, Howard, I, I just could add one thing. Is I, yeah. I think having such a waiver clause is even more vital in other U.S. jurisdictions because those other U.S. US jurisdictions may not necessarily have a state high court that's provided for this waiver. And thus, it's even more important to be clear in other venues that you're waiving the Hague Service Convention uh, and instead providing for your own uh, service of process. And I might just add one more thing, and that is that in researching all this, we concluded that there was a very strong argument that a demand for arbitration, which is the demand made to the other party and not made in a court, the, 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 a demand for arbitration may not at all even be covered by the Hague Service Convention. And so we took some comfort in reaching that conclusion. Although, you know, there's there's no case law that I think we saw that specifically provided that. But we do believe, based on the language of the convention, uh, that a demand for arbitration is not subject to the Hague Service Convention in terms of service. And even though the Supreme Court did only rule on the uh, service of the uh, proceedings for the confirmation award, uh, it still will be a very strong argument, wouldn't it, even involving the notice of the arbitration, that if a waiver of the Hague Convention applies to the court proceeding, that uh, there is certainly a strong argument that the waiver would apply also to the demand for arbitration. and But whatever, however the strength of that argument may be, it's still prudent to include the waiver clause in the arbitration agreement, uh, is it not? Uh, yeah, I would say it is absolutely prudent to do that. I would be careful of saying how far the Supreme Court's decision goes because it did note that its ruling was narrow. Yeah. And so there's plenty of wiggle room. Uh, with respect to a separate issue of a demand for arbitration, but logically, Howard, you're right. Yeah. No, I think that's right. You have to be prudent in terms of reading the opinion, but on the principle of it can't do any harm to include the waiver, yeah. uh, uh, probably prudent practice would call for including it with full knowledge, as you said, of the technical limits of the uh, 
of the Rockefeller holding. I just want to say, Dan, this has been a, a, a really important presentation of international arbitration in California. This is an area of law uh, that all lawyers ought to be familiar with because as international arbitration is defined, it's not just between foreign companies and California companies. If any material part of the uh, of the agreement, of the contract, is to be performed in, in a country outside the United States, it may well fall within the California International Arbitration Act. And people should be aware and look for this because of the great advantage of the Hague Convention of then winding up with an award that could be enforced any place in the war in the world, which may be important in particular cases, may be important in, in general cases. But international arbitration, and you have led the way, Dan, in, in bringing about the opportunity for the growth of international arbitration in California through drafting the International Arbitration and Conciliation Act in 1988, uh, through what you've done with the Supreme Court as chair of the committee that led to the new statute that has dealt with the Bierbauer problem that has opened up the opportunity for California lawyers uh, to draft clauses that bring international arbitrations to California. So I just want to say that not only grateful to you for participating in this podcast, but also for all the work you've done over the years in something that will be of enormous benefit to the Californian economy, California businesses, and the California bar in being a major factor in promoting international arbitration in California. Uh, we thank you for all of that. I do want to say that for this podcast, uh, you can listen to this podcast uh, within the Daily Journal subscription. You also should know you can listen to all podcasts, out, even if you're not a subscriber to the Daily Journal. They're outside the paywall, the podcasts and the MCLE. If you simply go to dailyjournal.com or dailyjournal.com podcasts, you can listen to these podcasts and freely listen and distribute them, even if you're not a subscriber to the Daily Journal. If you wish, there is also additional material in the Daily Journal archives on these subjects. There are numerous articles, for example, on international arbitration, including articles that both Dan and I independently and others have written. It's an archive of enormous value. If you're not a subscriber to the Daily Journal and you want access to that archive, if you go to dailyjournal.com and you will see in the blue button on the page to click to become a subscriber. And when you become a subscriber to the Daily Journal, you will then have access to all the archives, to the ability to bookmark those archives, to save them for future research, and to take advantage of a true treasure trove of information on practicing law in California. But beside that general point, for the moment, we thank Dan Kolke for everything that he has done. And thank you so much for doing this podcast as well, Dan. It's been a pleasure to do this with you. <music>